And now the news. We turn to special correspondent Trip Hazard for a special report. Hi, I'm outside a nondescript building in a small town somewhere near a big city, and there's nothing to report. And can you give us details about what isn't happening? Well, Josh, behind me in this building, nothing is happening. A group of 30 men in grey suits has not entered the building, and there has definitely been no chanting or suggestion of blood sacrifices. Indeed. For how long has this been going on? Well, these meetings definitely do not go back centuries. There is no evidence whatsoever that these non-existent men are part of an ancient society who have been meeting here since the 1880s. I see. And what are the people in the area not saying about this? Well, one woman I didn't speak to did not tell me that her family have not been suspicious about the lack of goings-on in the area for a long time now. As she didn't say, these non-existent grey-suited individuals who are not part of an ancient society, who have not been meeting here for well over a century, do not seem to have ambitions to rule the world. Well, no news is good news? Yes, the fact nothing is happening here means there is nothing to see, and thus there is nothing to worry about. Everything is fine. Although... Sorry, I thought I saw something, but as previously reported, nothing is happening. Well, Tripp, thanks for that special report. You'll get us updated if nothing else happens? Yes. I mean, no. Maybe? And now we turn to sports, a game of two halves in which the best half wins. The Otterboxers were playing the clarified trombones in Turkey last week, and we have sports journalist Jack Danger with us in studio to give us the details on what that means for the next season of Sports World. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello, you're listening to The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Here in Auckland, New Zealand, I am Josh Edison, and in Zhuhai, China, it's Associate Professor of Philosophy and voiced by labial nasal, M. Denton. Yes! That, that, that was the true one. That was the one fact that's true. Or was yes. it? Yes! Mm. No! No? Yes. So this and also this this week this week's been a bit of a a bit of a what's what what's the nice way of saying shambles? I'm not sure. We've been uh, battling. It's, it's, it's been it's been an omni shambles to yes. harshly quote the thick of it. It's been an omni shambles. I mean, there's a much more profane way of saying that, as Malcolm mm. Tucker would say. But we can he get away would. with omni shambles. Yes. Yes. No. Um. Apart from. The immediate trouble we're having with um, internet issues that, that that could bring this episode to a, a, an a early premature end, conclusion. If we're not lucky, premature conclusion. We've also had had various uh, issues with coming up with a topic for this week, so we're going to do a news episode. Haven't done one of those in a main episode for ages. We tend to do them in the bonus episodes a bit, but but, but luckily for us, there's there actually been some news. interesting news yeah. this week. Yeah. Yeah. And some of which is continuations of stories we've had in the past, which makes it mm. even more interesting. Actually relevant, yeah. Do we do we have a new sting? Did we used to back when we did? We do, and I've got one somewhere. I shall resurrect it from the archive. Dig, dig that up. Dig that up and, and we'll put, put it in there, there right I think now. Somewhere. Somewhere around about now. I'm just trying to find the right place to put it in. I think we should put it in somewhere almost almost I think about here. Breaking, breaking conspiracy theories in the news. Ah, that takes me back. All the way back. I I honestly can't remember when we last actually did an episode that was just a news episode in the main thing. 
Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I don't know. I just don't or know. Or does it just show that our memories are getting progressively worse as time goes by? Yeah, it also shows we've been doing a podcast for like eight and a half years, so I think we can be forgiven a little bit of uh, little bit of memory slippage when it comes to every single thing we've done. Remember when we used to talk in clipped Atlantic accents the entire time? Joshua, now we're going to talk about conspiracy theories. What's the gossip going on in New York about conspiracy theories right now? And then I would say... There is one, one conspiracy theory. Ah, ah, ah. Ah, ah, ah. Ah, those were the days. Famous North Atlantic accent right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, news, news. Uh, It keeps happening. Hard to stop it, to be honest. Uh, And there is some. Somebody should should stop the news. They really should stop the news. Well, yeah, I figure we could all do with a break, perhaps. If, If just nothing could happen for a while, just nothing at all, Bit of bit, bit of entropy. I think that's what we need. Yeah, but someone would report on that. Nothing well, is happening. Probably. No, it said something has been happening. Where should we start? I guess we'll just, just let's just go through the list from, from start yeah, to finish. Let's go Another all the way fancy. to Australia. No, because there's an item in the list before that. No. Oh no, we'll you're looking right. at the same yes, list. Yay! We are, we, so we, ten... we are looking at the same list. I just, I just scroll, I scrolled down too far. Uh, you so and your instead, scroll. let's go to the United States of America, but also possibly Christchurch, and also who the hell knows where. Uh, yeah. So for some reason, people have been talking about satanic panic stuff, or at least, or or, or at least, at least you say some people. I mean, at least two people, but I'm not entirely sure whether it's actually more than two people. But it does appear to be related to the TV show Stranger Things. Now, Josh. I haven't watched Stranger Things since season two because my opinion on Stranger Things is it's meant to be a show set in the 80s. And certainly from a visual aesthetic perspective, it's meant to look like the 80s. But the actual plot and the characterizations is not the 80s. If it was an 80s set TV show, where is the large amount of racism that we had in 80s TV? It's not there. It just Stranger Things does not feel authentically 80s to me. Now, admittedly, that does make it sound as if I stopped watching the show because there wasn't enough racism Not racist, racist enough it. for you. Mm. <laughs> I stopped watching the show because I ended up going, I'm actually not entirely sure what the point of the show is other than somebody really likes 80s aesthetics, and it's not a decade I actually want to be reminded of. Mm. Well, meanwhile, I've, I quite enjoy it, and I've stuck with it. And, um, yes, yeah, so if you haven't seen season four of Stranger Things, there's a, a bit of a subplot that's... Uh, essentially uh, the satanic panic stuff going on. There's um, there's a Dungeons and Dragons club and when wacky things start happening because it's stranger things and weird supernatural stuff's always going on and uh, the town at large starts to become aware of it, they immediately uh, whip, whip up a, a, a witch hunt. Witch hunt? Lynch mob? One of those two. A moral Against panic. The, they engage hmm, in a, a moral, moral panic. Against the Dungeons and Dragonsy people who are supposedly all into black magic and, and obviously anything evil that's going on has to be their fault. So it got a little bit of um, a little bit in the public consciousness, perhaps in the same way that uh, Watchmen uh, educated people on the Tulsa race riots and uh, Ms. Marvel has introduced a new generation to the partition of India who perhaps weren't aware of that. Although, frankly, people who've been watching Doctor Who knew about that two years ago when it was an ep- episode in the first season of Jodie Whittaker's run as the Doctor. Mm. Well, there you go. But now American people know about it, and that, that means it's real. That's but also, 
so there's been a little bit, a, a couple of people have, for reasons that I cannot discern, started talking about this again as though, as though they thought it was something real. So the one I saw was the other day, Anna Biller, who is the director of The Love Witch from 26. Have you seen The Love Witch? Which I've never seen. Oh, no, I haven't seen either. I, I, remember, I remember when it was um, coming out at the time. It got a bit of press. Because it was done in the style. It was like one of sort of Ty West's ones, wasn't it? It was done in the style of an older sort of exploitation film or something. But at any rate, it's, she, she took to Twitter to say she'd, she'd gone down the rabbit hole and done a bunch of investigating and found out all the truth about, in particular, the McMartin preschool trial, which I think, was that the big one? Was that the biggest of the big satanic panic cases? Yeah, so in the US, that's the really big one. So it turns out where you go in the world, there's a big example of a satanic panic. So in the mm. US, it's the McMartin preschool trial. Of course, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, it's the Christchurch crash trial. They're all similar in that it's all testimony of children elicited by adults based upon there being worries about the school environment or preschool environment the children were in. Children were asked, were there any untoward things going on? And the children describe ritual abuse and also some fairly fantastic fantastic elements as well. So, for example, one of the bits of evidence elicited from the children in the McMartin preschool trial is that one of the teachers at the preschool was literally able to fly. So you get evidence mm. of that particular kind. And what happened is that the satanic panic of the 80s, which was taken very seriously by a lot of people, including the really judiciary, mm. eventually collapsed as child psychologists got involved and went, first of all, the kind of questioning that's being used here is complex questioning which is leading, and B, and this is the thing which always kind of strikes me about discussion of the satanic panics of the 1980s, there was this rather naive view by the judiciary that children don't lie. So if you ask a child to testify to a particular claim or to answer a particular question, it was, in, it was thought that children don't lie under oath. And child psychologists were going... I mean, why would you think that? I mean, A, children can lie, and B, children often lie to adults because they realize that adults are asking them a particular kind of question, and children often want to placate or satisfy the kind of narrative urges of the adults they're working with, so they tend to give you the kind of answers you expect. So there's this kind of naivety about the way that children talk or describe things. Then, mean, oh, if a child says they saw a teacher flying across the room, they must have seen something. And child psychologists go, no, no, no. You need to actually look at the way the questions were asked there because I suspect you'll find the child is telling you something that they think you want to hear. Yes, but that, 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 that uh, appears to have passed people such as um, Isabella Bai, she said, um, so, so the, actual, the actual tweet was, well, the first one, there was a series of them, was, once I went down a deep satanic panic rabbit hole and I learned that the children slash toddlers in the McMartin daycare centre had STDs and genital scarring, there were really tunnels, etc. The perpetrators weren't charged because they couldn't prove which adults abused them. Uh, so the, the reference to tunnels is the one of the things the children 
gave testimony about was that there were these tunnels underneath the daycare centre that the, the which is these, also these... true in the Christchurch crash case as well. The children mm. claim that there are extensive tunnel networks and also secret passages in the attics of the crash. Yeah, which were shown to basically not exist. But um, according to the website that uh, she read, uh, which was which was she did give a link in there. It was a single website about about abuse or something. Then she sort of went on about the fact that you know the, the, that supposedly they didn't exist, but uh, they they found that the tunnels really were there. Now apparently there were people did actually go looking for tunnels underneath the Stakia Centre. Apparently they did find as they did in the crash case as well. Hmm. They actually dug up large sections of the area around the crash to try and find these supposed tunnels. Hmm. And uh, apparently they did find what what a. What, what they think were um, sort of trenches that would have been dug back when the thing was first being constructed and then later filled in, um, that they found these things. There was no material in these what are thought to be garbage pits that dated after the 1930s or 40s. So sort of, you know, they obviously had been filled in for, for decades. Um, so there's stuff like that, but yeah, she, so she gives a, a thread of all the stuff about how essentially that there was a massive cover up, um, makes reference to things like Jeffrey Epstein. Supposedly it was this network of, um, you know, your satanic pedophiles that were, were too big to prosecute and so on and so forth. And people basically said, oh, for goodness sake, this stuff, this, n- nothing here is new. You're, you're bringing up things that have been debunked and de- disproved. 30 or 40 years ago, what are you even doing? And the only thing, the, the, the only other thing I think that appears to be you at the moment is, of course, the, the QAnon style of conspiracy theories that are, are, are around and um, pro- more prominent in the media that say these evil liberal elites, whatever, with their, their evil pedophiles drinking adrenochrome and, and sacrificing children to the lizard people or what have you. So that's possibly why it could have got a little more um, traction now, but really it, it, it just does seem quite bizarre that now of all times people decided to start talking about satanic panic again as though it were a thing. I mean, oh, sorry, yes. satanic panic yeah. were a thing. The things yeah. people were panicking about were not a thing. Yeah, and it's it's particularly galling given that there is quite the literature on exactly what went wrong in the satanic panic, the way in which authorities basically ignored inconsistent evidence on the basis that they assumed the thing that they were looking into was occurring, rather than actually questioning, could this thing have occurred in in the first place? And it led to a lot of damage to families around the place. And also, arguably, because of that panic, also contributed to a culture where we didn't take actual abuse claims seriously, because people then, after the satanic panic of the 80s, assumed that a lot of abuse complaints were related to that panic and thus they weren't assessed according to the evidence. So the panic kind of cut both ways. Mm. Yes, all round a a depressing affair that I really, really wish we could say we've seen the back of, but um, maybe that's not the case. But one thing we may have seen the back of is the Somerton Man. Wow. See, see how I made that work? You did, although I although that's probably not actually true as we'll get into it, but there's been a development. Yeah, yeah, there has been. So we've talked about the Somerton Man a few times on the podcast, most notably 
when we talked about the third series of the Lovecraft investigations and that Summerton Man is a plot point in one of the episodes in season three of the Lovecraft investigation, where they're kind of talking about things which hint towards something weird going on in the world, which aren't directly related to the case, but the writer's so keen to bring this stuff in. Summerton Man gets a reference here. Now, Summerton Man is a famous Australian John Doe. Do Australians refer to their unidentified corpses as John Doe's? That's a kind of American thing. Bruce Doe? Bruce Smith. He's a famous Bruce Smith from from Australia, uh, who was found at Summerton Beach in Adelaide on December the 1st, 1948. And... He was wearing an American suit. He had an American comb in his pocket. And we know it was an American comb because the comb was, and I'll use the American word, aluminium? No, aluminum. 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 Yes. Yeah, that's the American word. That's how you know it was American, yes. Yeah. It was an aluminum comb, not an aluminium comb, as we would say in the colonies, an aluminum Mm. comb. And he was wearing, as I say, he was wearing an American suit. And he had a piece of paper inside his pocket with the words Tamam Shud, which means finished in Persian. And that was really all they knew about him. It was a corpse on a beach, kind of almost laid out. He was just lying hmm. there, arms across in, his chest. In quite good condition, no no visible Very injuries. Very good condition. Yeah. Not even not even particularly sort of ruffled or, or anything. Just, no, you know, as, as if he say, just kind of yeah, lay down to die and then died as mysteriously as he lived, which is because we didn't know who he was. Mm. And now people think we do. There's been this ongoing mystery since 1948. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the, the longer they looked into the case, the more mysterious it seemed to get. There was, um, there was also a ticket stub on or near him, and which the police sort of used to check the local train station, uh, and they found a suitcase at the train station that they were pretty sure was his. Uh, when they looked at it, there, it only had... Um, clothing in it, and the clothing had no tags on it. Um, although, interestingly, it did have, some of the items of clothing did have a name written on them, but for some reason they think that either was, that they never took that seriously. I, I forget the exact reasoning, but they didn't seem to think that was particularly significant. Um, the scrap of paper with Tamam Shud printed on it, um, they matched it to the final page of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a, a book of poetry by, uh, I can't even remember now, tra- translation into English of Persian poetry, uh, and, and particularly they, they could even match it to this specific edition of it because some editions, I think, spelled Tamam wrong or something like that. And so they, they could say quite quite clearly which book uh, it was had been taken from a copy of. Um, but that's still... Didn't, didn't tell me anything about the man. Um, they did an autopsy on him, of course, to find out how he died. The, the autopsy suggested, like, internally he looked like he'd been poisoned, but there didn't seem, there, there were no signs of anything like vomiting or what have you that you might be led, uh, you, you would usually expect to see when a person had been poisoned, suggesting that possibly it was a very fast acting poison, if that were the case. Uh, then there was the mysterious book. 
um, a man who's had had his car parked just nearby at the time, um, who always left it parked with the windows open, uh, showed up at a police station saying, hey, somebody dropped this book into the open window of my car. Um, and assuming that it was related to the case, they had a look and found that on the back page of the book, there is what appears to be an encrypted message, several lines of what looked to be just random sequences of letters. One of the lines crossed out, whatever that's supposed to mean. And so it became mysterious enough that one of the leading theories was, oh, this guy must have been some sort of spy. Like if he's got secret messages and he seems to be making sure he has no identifying marks on him or anything like that, then maybe he was he was up to no good and, and, and it caught up with him or who knows what. There were various other other figures who got caught up in it. Um, as well as this mysterious message, the book also contained an unlisted telephone number, which they eventually traced to a nurse who lived nearby called Jessica Thompson. When police interviewed her, she said she had no idea who this guy was or why her number would be in this book. But then there's a whole lot of investigation into her that supposed that there's sort of evidence that she did own a copy of uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and she knew someone else connect- who seemed to be connected to the case. Uh, in 2013, Australian 60 Minutes did an investigation into the case, during which they interviewed um, Joe Thompson, uh, sorry, Jessica Thompson's daughter, and the daughter said that her mother had said to her, uh, confided in her that she'd actually lied to the police, that she did know this man and claimed that he was quote known to a level higher than the police force but no more detail than that there are a couple of other mysterious deaths in 1945 and 1949 in particular there was a guy near somewhere around there and died in 1945 and was found with the rubaiyat of omar Khayyam on his chest mysterious just the further you looked the more weird stuff showed up and in part in part that's because because no one knew who the Somerton man was, let alone how he had died or why he had died, anything which even just tangentially related to his supposed existence suddenly became evidence of, well, this might be linked to it, this might be linked to it. I mean, the book is a great example of this. So a person finds a book in their car they're relatively proximate to the discovery of a corpse. And in the absence of evidence, people go, well, this this might be connected to the case. Of course, it might not be connected. You've got no reason to think it is. But in an absence of evidence, you start entertaining other theories going, well, we don't know much. And investigating this might give us a link that tells us something more about the other case. And so much of the Somerton Man stuff is a case of people going, well, we don't have much evidence about this thing, but there are these other things going on that might be connected with might being really stressed there. So if we solve those, maybe if they're connected to Somerton Man, we can solve the mystery of who he is. Although that's that's not how they solve the case, is it? No, no. So Professor Derek Abbott from the University of Adelaide claims that he has identified the Somerton Man. Um, so after they uh, applied some years ago to exhume his body um, to, to do DNA testing, and that was approved, and he was uh, was exhumed in 2021, um, apparently the formaldehyde that he had been embalmed with, they reckon, probably would have made 
Uh, but by this time, like he's been in the ground for 70 years, whatever's left of him probably wouldn't have been in much of a state. But apparently they uh, were able to, there were some hairs left. They, they did a plaster cast of him. Uh, uh, it was not not technically a death mask, but essentially that they did a plaster cast of his face and shoulders, um, I think, so that they could continue to, you know, show a likeness of him to people after he'd been buried. Uh, but there are a couple of his hairs left in the plaster of that. And so using DNA extracted from his hairs, Professor Abbott, with the help of American genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick, were able to do a bit of bit of DNA sleuthing. So apparently they they compared his the DNA they extracted from his hair to a DNA database, found a distant relative of his in this database, then worked backwards through that guy's family tree, looking for someone, the appropriate sort of level of remove uh, from him, who was around at a, about the same time. And they basically were looking for a guy who he appeared to be a, sort of around in his 40s, so someone who would have been born sort of in the early 1900s, and in particular, they were looking for someone who there was no record of their death at the time. Because obviously, you know, if, if there was an official record of the person having died, well, then you'd know they probably weren't uh, the, some, the, the one that showed up mysteriously on a beach in Adelaide. Um, and so having done all that, they believe they have identified Somerton Man as a man called Carl Webb, otherwise known as Charles Webb, from Melbourne. Now, Mr. Webb was an electrical engineer. Apparently, he... There is no death record of him. I think that that was one of the main things. You know, he he is a member of the right family. He's the right age, and there's uh, no record of when when he did supposedly die. All we know about him really is he was married. He left his wife in 1947, a year before he died, if that is him. After he left his wife, he kind of disappeared to the extent that, that by 1951, his wife having not heard from him since 1947, uh, filed for an, uh, an official divorce. Um, they suspect, sort of as to the question of if he was from Melbourne, why would his body have been in Adelaide? That is the other side of the country, and Australia is very large. They did point out that his wife had moved down to South Australia and Adelaide was sort of on the way, so possibly he was, he was, he was trying to track her down, um, having left her previously. Now, it's a shame... It's a shame that they didn't find the DNA in one of Webb's children, because then you could say they used his hairs to track his ears. You could say that, and then I would have to beat you quite viciously. So it's Luckily, a good thing. I'm in a completely different country, so could have got away with it. But yeah. of course, that that wasn't the way. Now it's not unfortunately. All this does basically is shift the mystery because now if this turns out to be the identity of Somerton Man and as we hinted at at the top of the story people are still in doubt that this is the actual explanation of the event because all we have is this DNA connection there is a worry that the DNA is degraded so far that actually it's probably not a, it may not be a reliable match although it does turn out that Webb has some of the characteristics that would fit the story quite well. He disappears at the right time. He isn't seen after 1948. So if it isn't Webb, then you also have to ask what happened to Charles Webb. But that also is the question of if he is Somerton Man, who was Charles Webb? And what was he doing in Adelaide wearing American clothes, carrying an American comb? Because mm. aluminum combs were 
were not a common thing in the Southern Hemisphere at that time, which is actually what makes his comb so weird. It's not a case of police officer, but oh, it's a it's a aluminum comb. It's a case of hey, this comb is made out of a strange, mysterious metal that's non-magnetic. What sorcery is this? Said the Australian detective back in 1948. In 1948, word for word. yes, word mm. for word. Yeah, so I mean, it, it it in a way, it really um like if. If if it had turned out that they'd matched it to a guy who was a known agent of a foreign state, or you know somebody who had some um, some some connection to espionage or who or, or organised crime or something else that might get a person killed, then maybe that would give us some sort of an idea. But as it turns out, we we think we know who the guy is, and he's just some guy. So what was he doing there? All, all the questions about what he was doing there, why he had that thing, in, why he had that note in his pocket, how he died, why he died, it doesn't answer any of those questions. So there's still um, a, lot of, a lot of mystery left. An article I read talked to Carolyn Billsborough, who um, did a documentary called Missing Pieces about Summerton Man, and so uh, she was very excited to hear this. Um, and as looking into it, she said... Um, she says, my feeling has always been has always been that it's been suicide. Uh, that Rubaiyat was known as a kind of suicide handbook, apparently. And yeah, she says basically, you know, she, she's she's already looking into um, old documents to see if she can find anything out about Charles Webb. She says there's almost a sequel film here, uh, not of who is Summerton Man, but now it's the mysterious case of Charles Webb. So there is still quite a lot to. Uh, Quite a lot to learn in this case, and it isn't really much less mysterious uh, for being able to put a name to the to the face. If indeed that is the right name to put to the face in the first place. Mm, yes, I mean these folks seem fairly confident, but um, I don't know anything really about tracing DNA well, I mean, and genealogy and stuff like that. So I don't know how confident. It reminds can be. me somewhat of when they claim they solved the murder of Olaf Palmer a few years ago, and it was case closed, and then people go, it's really not case closed. It's, you know, you know, we we now have someone, they go, well, the evidence is pretty good, it's X, and people are going, yeah, there's still, there's still big questions as to exactly, if it was X, why was it X? And also, X is not a reliable narrator of their own life, and in the same case, we've got, we've got DNA evidence, it's Charles Webb, and people are going, yeah, but the DNA is not great not great i mean yes circumstantially charles webb fits the bill quite nicely although it doesn't explain some of the weird the weird features but let's not declare it case closed just yet Hmm. in fact let's say it's case open indeed it it is interesting that yeah if we were to get a bit more detail it would be interesting to see how many if any of these um, features of the case that seem most mysterious turn out to be nothing, turn out to be, oh, that was actually just a coincidence that has nothing to do with the case and we've been poring over it as the, in connection, but really there was nothing there. Um, it, that would, I think, that, that that's that's one thing that I would find quite interesting, even if even if it turns out there's it, it is just a guy drank poison, you know, arranged himself neatly, drank poison because he was sad he'd left his wife and ruined his life or something, and that's all there is to it. It would still be interesting to see just how all the other aspects of the case could 
be written off as things that we gave significance to rather than actually being significant. Well, yeah, I mean, as I say, the dropped book thing, I think, is one of the most suspicious bits of evidence used in connection with Somerton Man in that it's it's proximate and, yeah, I mean, sure, it might be, it might be related or it just might not be. Yes, I think people your assumptions in. Yeah, people really did seem to be telling a story to themselves in that case of imagining, you know, a guy is maybe on the run, he's got his significant book uh, before people finally catch up with him and he meets his end, he quickly chucks it in a nearby car to hide it from his pursuers or something, but that is just a narrative people are inventing from whole cloth. So yeah, I'll be interested to see if anything more comes of this case. But you know what? Another case that something more of has come. I think that's grammatically correct. I mean, it is grammatically correct, but it's also not in any way elegant. Are you going to, not, you going to tell a, me something about about the Loch Ness monster? Is that what you're going to the tell? The goddamn tell Loch Ness monster. The Loch Ness monster, which of course we most recently talked about in episode 350, because the numbers 350 and the Loch Ness monster are inextricably bound, as anybody knows. Uh, that's that. That's a pop culture reference that is as timeless as, as timeless as time itself, and as widely known as as oxygen. Anyway, why so widely known as oxygen? Everybody knows oxygen. Do you did what do you say you don't? Do you not breathe the stuff? It's everywhere. Talk sense. This is nonsense. I won't stand for it anymore. Yes, so the Loch Ness Monster is the real. Loch Ness Monster. We know of evidence Loch- it is real. A university has declared the Loch Ness Monster is quote-unquote plausible. Now, plausible is an interesting word. <laughs> it is. It's, it's one of those sentences where you end up going, it is technically correct. The Loch Ness Monster is plausible. It's just, it's missing quite a lot of detail quite a lot of detail because the story here is people have one of the theories behind the Loch Ness Monster is that it's a surviving plesiosaur or some kind of aquatic dinosaur so the claim that people look at somehow plesiosaurs have survived the tens of millions of years actually it was even longer since the hundreds it's one of these things where you go yeah, hundreds of millions of years, somehow a family of plesiosaurs living in a small freshwater lake in Scotland have managed to maintain their lineage for a hundred million years or so. And one of the arguments against that hypothesis has always been, aha, but plesiosaurs are saltwater dinosaurs. They don't live in fresh water. And the thing about Loch Ness is that it's a freshwater lake. Now, the response to that has always been, well, actually, Loch Ness is a freshwater lake, but it is connected to the sea. So very deep beneath the lake, there's a set of tunnels which lead towards the ocean. Although by set of tunnels, we're not talking large tunnels that plesiosaurs can swim through. We're talking about a kind of a, a network of small, porous tunnels which allow water to get in from the the ocean but nonetheless people say look there is there is a mechanism to explain how maybe maybe in the very depths of Loch Ness there's enough salt there that plesiosaurs could live down there and they just surface from time to time to breathe and they go back down to their salt water dens now new evidence has come out that 
contrary to what we thought we knew, plesiosaurs can be found and were living in freshwater uh, river systems. So we've found plesiosaur fossils now in Morocco, in an area that was entirely a freshwater basin and river system, showing that technically, if Nessie is a plesiosaur, then Nessie could live in Loch Ness because Nessie wouldn't need salt water. Ipso facto, the Loch Ness monster is plausible if we assume Loch Ness monster is a plesiosaur and we assume plesiosaurs have managed to survive in a small inland lake for 100 million years or more. Yes, so that plausible... I mean, plausible is... It's supposed to be sort of a position somewhere between sort of you've got on one end, you've got possible where, yes, anything's possible. You, you, you can't, you can barely write off anything as, as completely impossible. And then at the other end, you've sort of got probable, like it's probably actually true and sort of plausible. I always kind of think of plausible being more towards the probable end of the scale, but this is very much more towards the possible end of the scale there when they say plausible what they mean really is not impossible on one particular set of grounds that you used to say it was impossible and also adding in a whole bunch of other caveats as well yes it's it's an odd claim which i suspect is a classic case of a clickbait headline well yes yeah really it is i think it's um it's an interesting discovery in and of itself that these people have found uh plesiosaur fossils in actually it's actually in the sahara desert um in morocco which a hundred odd million years ago was not a desert was a a a flourishing freshwater river system so it's an interesting find you know we found fossils in an area where we didn't think those fossils actually were but um yeah you could probably get a bit of more attention if you say plesiosaurs oh didn't they say Loch Ness monster was a plesiosaur and 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 the sex of the story up as it were and I, I, I'm, I'm not interested in your sexy Loch Ness monster stories. I like a good, good Christian, God-fearing plesiosaur stories, quite frankly. None of your smut, none of your Loch Ness monster filth, quite frankly. I mean, that is the reason why Jesus died for their sins. Mm. Not our yep. sins, their sins. The sins of yep. the plesiosaur, because you might think they're God-fearing Christians, but those plesiosaurs, oh, they were some of the most depraved dinosaurs by those ever necks. Met. Where, what do you think those necks were for? Doesn't bear thinking about. Yeah, so basically, to sum up, out of the many, many reasons to think that the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist, the idea it was a plesiosaur, so it couldn't have lived in a freshwater lake, is no longer one of those reasons. But uh, there are still lots and lots and lots and lots of other reasons to think that the Loch Ness monster doesn't exist. So name two. Uh, you already bloody did. It, it would have had to have survived in a small area for a couple of hundred million years with a, a, a small a, a population not big enough, uh, too small to be a breeding population. There's a couple. Fine, fine. You you've hoisted me by my own petard. You've hoisted me by my own petard. Good bit of petard hoisting. Hoising. And you call, the, and you call yourself technical. a God-fearing Christian. I, I don't, actually. So it all works That's out. True. That, that, that is true. I, I've been hoisted again by my petard mm. twice. It's a double hoist yep. or a double petard. Mm. 
Or so, I was hoisted by one petard, landed on another petard, and got hoisted again. Mm. Uh, linguistics pedant, I must point out, hoist is already past tense. It's a, a Shakespearean past tense of the verb hoise, meaning to be thrown into the air. So you don't need to say hoisted if you want to make yourself sound like a complete wanker. And you know I do. <laughs> Josh, I'm a philosopher. I always sound like a complete wanker. Well, there we go. Well, then put, put that to good use then and tell me about Alzheimer's disease. I forget. Why are we talking about Alzheimer's disease? Oh, and it's an Alzheimer's, an Alzheimer's <laughs> gag right off the start. You're and, on fire. And Keep thing, it going. And the thing is, uh, I think is, I'm I'm entitled to make Alzheimer's gags because Alzheimer's actually runs in my family. So the story I'm about to tell is something which actually does frighten me ever so slightly. So this is a story in two parts. So the first part is, so there's a new drug on the market called. Simuflan. Simuflan? Yes, Simuflan. I always wish people would give drugs ordinary names like Derek or something like, you know, Francis. I'm taking two doses of Francis and then I'll be fine. No, I'm taking Simuflan. I mean, really, what does that even mean? So there's a new drug on the market which people were a little bit suspicious about because it was being... It was being marketed as a new way of treating Alzheimer's. People were concerned the researchers behind the drug might be engaging in fraud and that the initial results from the studies indicated no real effect. And so Matthew Schrag was brought in. He's a neuroscientist and physician at Vanderbilt University. And we said, can you, can you look at the data here? and see whether it actually got statistically significant results. And in part, this is due to the fact that last year, and we mentioned this on the podcast, a new drug treating Alzheimer's was approved by the FDA, uh, Aduheim, and people were, in out, were outraged by its FDA approval because it appeared to have no real effect on the treatment of Alzheimer's with horrendous side effects. So... If there was any effect on Alzheimer's, it was basically outweighed by the horrendous side effects that patients would get from it. And so there were resignations from various bodies, including members of the FDA, because they they thought the entire approval process was in some way corrupted by funding monies in the background. So there's a, a lot of attention being paid towards Alzheimer's drugs, and Schrag was brought in to investigate whether this new one actually does any work now this is where we get to the second and disturbing part because the story basically isn't about this new drug it's about the entire basis for alzheimer's research and thus the basis for the treatment for alzheimer's because as part of his investigation into is this new drug going to work schrag went back to the original research which basically posits that the cause of Alzheimer's is a certain plaque which is found in brain tissue. So he went back and looked at the original research paper from 2006, which appeared to show that a specific amyloid beta protein 
actually gets into the brain tissue as a plaque and causes Alzheimer's by basically blocking chemical receptors, this paper is called, literally, a specific amyloid B beta, a specific amyloid beta protein assembly in the brain impairs memory into plaques and Alzheimer's. It was published in 2006 in Nature. Its lead researcher is Sylvain Lesnay. And Schrag went back and looked at this paper as part of his research to work out whether this new drug worked, and he discovered that at least 70 of the images in this original paper were manipulated and doctored to the point where parts of the images were cut and paste of other parts of the images, and some of the profiles had been doctored such that they indicated results that weren't in the original reference images. And so Schrag is going, this, this indicates that the entire research project into treatment around Alzheimer's may well be based around an academic fraud, which might actually explain why none of the drugs we've developed subsequent to 2006 work because we might be trying to treat a problem which is not occurring in Alzheimer's patients. Mm, which I guess, yeah, raises the question then when they're asking, you know, is uh, the people, uh, the researchers making these drugs engaging in fraud, that does then seem to raise the possibility that they're, they're acting in good faith. They, they are producing a drug which, according to the research, should work, and yet it still did seem that it wasn't working very well. So there is possibly still a question about it's all well and good to say this should be working according to everything we know, but the fact is it wasn't working, so why were they? You know, there, there's still a question, I guess, to answer about why they would be trying to get approval for this and um, and make money off well, of I mean, it. Well, I mean, in the Edaheim case, the argument was both there is a statistically small change, which many researchers who weren't promoting the drug were going, yeah, it's so statistically small that it's probably not in any way anything other than random chance. And B, it's better to have a potential treatment out there than no treatment at all. And an awful lot seem to be resting on that latter claim. Better that there be a treatment you can apply rather than no treatment. And other people are going, yeah, giving people false hope is not a good idea in these situations. And so this, this new drug, once again, there is a, a small change, which might just be happenstance. And once again, there's a feeling that we should be getting drugs out there because maybe if they're applied in a mass scale, because there are tens of millions of people with Alzheimer's out there, I might be one of them eventually. Mm. It's better that uh, once you start applying the treatment to a larger population, you actually may see bigger change. But if Schrag's research, which has been being spread here by 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 science the publication here is to be believed it looks like the entire basis for the research program and of the treatments is the result of fraud and so there's now a very open question as to whether the specific amyloid beta protein that people claim is responsible for alzheimer's is even present in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, because there have been some subsequent studies where people have really struggled to locate these plaques in people with quite advanced Alzheimer's. 
And there might be a reason behind that. It might be because it's not the mechanism at all. Mm. So, yes, that lead researcher, Sylvain Lesnay, um, isn't talking at the moment, from what I understand, but um, the university is, is looking into it. And uh, apparently other of his, others of his papers are under suspicion now as well. Uh, some have had corrections because the images uh, in those papers were quote-unquote processed incorrectly. Yes, yeah, so there does appear mean a bunch to be some evidence that other bits of data he's produced in the past might also be the result of manipulation and the doctoring of data. Now, this might be a case where someone is fairly sure their research conclusions are correct and they're simply not getting the results that they should do in the lab, but they're convinced they've found the right mechanism, so they feel that quite rightfully, we just manipulate this data here, we can continue the research and get confirmation elsewhere. But at the same time, that's also not a justification for publishing doctored research. Even if you think you're right, if your data doesn't indicate you're right, you shouldn't change the data to support your conclusions. You should go, well, you need to do more experiments. Yes, that is that is basically doing science wrong. That's not how you meant to do it. And yet, all. this has happened in the past. So Eddington's mm. ed, Eddington's tests of Einstein's claim about the speed of light, where Eddington was measuring the speed of light, he did not get the results he expected from Einstein's equations, so he doctored the results in his publication on the belief that his measuring equipment was wrong and Einstein was right. And it turned out Eddington was correct. His measuring equipment was incorrect, but he still published false results and People keep pointing out that in the philosophy of science, that, that's not a good idea, especially given it does lead to a loss of trust in scientists. Yes. Well, I mean, people going all the way back to um, Hackle's embryos, if you know that one, that was something... Um, they were a great 80s band. One of the only parts of the 80s I liked was Hackle's embryos. Mm. But unfortunately, at the same time, it was that, that was a case... Um, I, I'm, this is just from memory now. Ernst Haeckel was a guy who had the theory. Uh, why don't I look him up properly while we do this? Um, he was a guy. He had the theory that uh, as a person, as, as as an embryo developed, it would go through the phases of sort of the the of of nature. So sort of a a human embryo at one point would would look like. Uh, the embryo of a, 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 an animal earlier on in its evolutionary history, or something like that. Uh, the point to, to, he had he had a bunch of the point is he had a bunch of theories about how embryos develop, and to prove these theories, he produced a bunch of diagrams of the embryos of various different animals at various stages of development. And unfortunately, it turned out he basically faked his drawings were not accurate, and he deliberately. Um, done them, misrepresented them to make his theory look more plausible when it wasn't. Now, this was, quickly looking at, look at 1892. 1892, he produced his fraudulent drawings. To this day, anti-evolutionists will still bring up Haeckel's embryos as an example of why scientists who think about embryonic development and evolution and processes and things like that are wrong. Because look at Haeckel, he lied his ass off. How can we trust science today? 
And the reply to that is, well, yeah, the people actually did find out about Hackle fairly quickly. Um, in this case, it's taken, uh, what, 16 years um, for people to rumble this guy, but uh, which is not good. But over the course of scientific, uh, of the history of science, it's not that long, I guess. But obviously still much better if it had never happened in the first place. Well, precisely. As someone who might have to take Alzheimer's drugs in the future, I kind of wish we'd had a 16-year lead time rather than starting mm. again from scratch. Exactly. Uh, and on that depressing note, we're out of news, which is a little depressing in itself. Well, but not we're really, out of news for the main news. episode mm. because we're... We're going to talk a little bit about Alex Jones in the Patreon bonus episode because people who are avid Alex Jones fans, and I have to ask why if you are, but if you are an avid Alex Jones fan, you'll be aware that the Sandy Hook defamation trials are going on in Austin, Texas right now, and Alex Jones is in court where the jury is working out the damages. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and also wander over to Infowars.com and see what Infowars is saying about this dastardly time for poor old Alex Jones. Mm. Or not saying is the case, maybe. Well, uh, but yes, often so you... that is the case. Mm. If you would like to hear about that um, and you're a patron, well, i got good news for you because you don't have to do anything. You'll just get that bonus bonus episode wherever you get bonus episodes from it was a complete mystery to me up until fairly recently to be quite honest where bonus episodes came from but there we go uh if you want to be a patron go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy you can sign yourself up for as little as a dollar a month and uh you'll, you'll get these bonus episodes just flying at you in a volume you can probably barely barely contain uh, and if you don't want to be a patron and, and listen to what Alex Jones is up to, that's that's quite. Fr I, frankly, I would not blame you for not wanting to know what Alex Jones is up to at the moment. And that's 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 your prerogative, and it's all good because you're our audience. And and thanks for that anyway. So that's 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 all the news that was fit to report on this week. Uh, recording as we are on the twenty eighth of July in the year of our Lord twenty twenty two. But a but, but, but a wholesome Christianess in there again, just to just to get the taste of the filthy, sinful Loch Ness monsters out of our mouths. Um, so with that out of the way, I don't really think there's anything else to do. So so what else is there to say? I'm Josh Addison. This has been the news. Good night. And I like to suck plesiosaurs. Dirty, dirty, dirty. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R. Extentive. Our show's conspiratory producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it.